Amen. Before we go to the table this day, our scripture reading, where our sermon meditation comes from this day, is from two passages. First, from Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, and then Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. You can find those in your copy of God's Word or in your worship guide this morning. There we read, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Then from Luke chapter 2, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Isaac Watts had no intention of writing a Christmas hymn when he wrote Joy to the World, that song that we just sang. In fact, he had no intention of even writing a hymn. Rather, it was a poem, a poem that was a collection of poems. Each poem was based upon a psalm. And so the poem that we now know as the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, was a poetic adaptation of Psalm 98. In fact, I think in that insert that you received on the bottom, you see that Psalm 98 is where Isaac Watts got this hymn from. And this psalm, Psalm 98, is an exaltation psalm, exalting the Lord. The psalm says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praise. Let the sea roars. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the Hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. In other words, the whole earth is to be glad and to be joyous and to sing. Why? Because the king is coming. Not just any king, the king of heaven and of earth, the king of creation. And so Isaac Watts, rightfully reading this psalm, saw this as Christ coming. And therefore he wrote, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. Perhaps this afternoon... After you have your Sunday afternoon nap, you may want to open up to Psalm 98 and think and meditate about this psalm in the light of Jesus as the coming king. Because that king and his coming is what we celebrate this 
Advent season, the joy that he brings. Our world needs joy, doesn't it? It needs it all the time, but especially now, especially in this year that we have had, because there is a level of doom and gloom that we all have endured, perceived or actual, but the perception is real, that 2020 will go down, no doubt, as a rough year overall. But before we would jump on that train of despair, let it not rob us of our joy, especially our joy this time of year, because our joy is not conditioned upon our circumstance. It never is. It is conditioned on Christ, and Christ has come, and Christ is coming again. And therefore, let there be joy, joy to the world. Let the earth receive her king. And therefore, as that psalm, that song says, let our hearts prepare him room as we think and meditate upon the coming of Christ this Advent season. And as we do so, Pastor Myers and I are entering into a new sermon series called The Crisis of Christmas. And you might be saying, Pastor, we don't need any more crises this year. Well, hopefully we will not add to it, but rather to show that crises are nothing new. Why is that? Because we live in a cursed and fallen world. And yet that is the very world that Christ came to save. He came to break the curse upon this earth and the curse upon us. And that, why, that is why our subtitle of this series is not only the crisis of Christmas, but far as the curse is found, which comes from that third stanza of joy to the world, that there is to be no more sins and sorrows that are to grow, nor thorns to infest the ground, because he comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. And so this morning and through this series, we are coming to see how Christ has indeed come to do just that, to break the curse as far as that curse is found. And this morning we see how he breaks the plight of God's people, the curse upon them in their plight. And we'll see that in two points, the temporal plight and then the eternal plight. Well, as we think of the Christmas story, sadly, I think we enter into some historical revision, not knowingly, of course, but in our perception of what the first Christmas was like. Perhaps it's because of the decor of Christmas that always looks so beautiful and so perfect. Or perhaps it's because of that serene nativity scene that we are so familiar with, with Mary and Joseph in their beautiful flowing robes and the haloed baby Jesus and all of the animals looking perfectly and calmly in on the whole occasion. And that has become, therefore, equated to us as this idyllic, perfect scene. 
And we begin to think that Christ entered into a perfect world. A world, in a sense, far, far away from us. Not only in distance, but in reality. But that can't be further from the truth. The world that Christ entered into was the same world that we live in. A world of chaos and confusion. Of sin and hurt, of anger and of pain. And so let us not think that his experience was somehow distant or removed from us as if he was isolated from quote-unquote real-world problems. No, if Christ was going to be the curse-bearer as we know he was, he had to experience the full weight of the curse. And yet that is why he came. He came not to be a fake or pseudo-savior. No, he came to be the real savior of the real world and all of the real world problems. He came to be your savior, your sympathetic high priest. And yet, again, I think that is so easily missed in the oh-so-familiar Christmas narrative. In fact, you missed it this morning as that passage was read. I know you did because we miss it every time. In fact, look back at Luke chapter 2. Again, how many times have we heard this read? Perhaps we could recite it because we have it memorized, because we have heard it so often. Well, look at this passage once again. Look at verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Hold on. Let's hear that again. A decree went out from who? Went out from the Lord? No. Went out from the king of Israel or the king of Judah, the son of David? No. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus. That is right, the Caesar of Rome, the Roman dictator of the world. Not just any dictator. No, the Augustus of Caesar Augustus. Well, that word Augustus means the august one or the exalted one. In other words, the Caesar in that day was considered a god a God upon earth. And so, when it says that Caesar issued a decree, it means that the Jewish people, the people of God, were under the power of a foreign, secular, pagan nation with a blasphemous leader who believed that he was God. And that is further emphasized by the name Quirinius. That silly, funny name that we snicker at when kids mispronounce in the Christmas pageant. But demonstrates, again, that they were very much under a foreign power. All that to say that God's people were under subjugation. That the scepter of Judah had departed 
Judah and Israel and was given to another and had been for quite some time. And so when this Caesar in Rome, this Roman dictator, issues a decree, it is a dictate that goes out to the known world. And all of those that were under his rule, the entire Roman world, would have to do exactly what he commanded and dictated that they would do, even those 2,300 miles away. In other words, what two peasants named Mary and Joseph in Nazareth were to do, that they were to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Why? Because they were to be registered. Again, we think, oh, well, isn't that nice? They were going to be registered. As if they were registering for a a baby shower at Target or a Macy's. That is not the kind of registering that they were going to do. No, why is it that they were to be registered? It's for one reason and one reason alone they were to be registered so that they could be taxed taxed by the roman government that is the only thing that the roman government was doing the only thing that they were concerned about in fact listen to the king james version how king james puts it in king james version of luke chapter 2 It says, and it came to pass in those days that they went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. That puts a different twist on the Christmas story, doesn't it? That awakens us, I think, to the reality of Mary and Joseph and really of all of Israel. They were living underneath another's power. They were at best second-class citizens in their own land. And they had no rights. And this dictator, as mentioned here in Luke chapter 2, who is thousands of miles away, could ultimately care less about them. No, he had no care or concern for those that were in his mind, Hodunk Israel, which was a Middle Eastern desert nation. No, the only thing that he was concerned about was that they would fill his coffers. They were pawns for his own purpose so that he could keep power and sway over the known world. Christ came not into a perfect world where all was right. He came into an unjust, unfair world. And yet, what I think is amazing is that here are the parents of our Lord abiding by this edict. Did they grumble and complain about it? Well, probably. 
Mary at this time was nine months pregnant, and she had to make this 80 to 90 mile trip. Oh, by the way, on foot, there's no mention of a donkey that they had for her to ride upon. No mention of it in the Gospels. Just ask one of our pregnant women if they would like to make an 80 or 90 mile trip on foot while being nine months pregnant. Let me know how that goes when you ask them. I'm guessing not very well. But the point is that they went, didn't they? They didn't make an excuse. They didn't disobey. No, they obeyed the tyrannical orders of a pagan dictator. Well, I think there's something there, isn't there? Now listen, I'm one that is for all the freedom and liberty and rights that we can get as a nation. I'm one that wants to see democracy up held in our country, but even if those rights and those liberties are taken away from us, God forbid, does that change our directives? Does that change what we are called to do? Does Christianity and the claims of Christ only survive in a democracy? History would say otherwise. The time of Christ would say otherwise. The current condition for many of our brothers and sisters around the world would say otherwise. Yes, democracy is beneficial. It upholds religious freedom, which we should be thankful for and hope to see continued as a nation. But even if it does, let us not think that what is demanded upon us changes for one moment. Let us not think that God somehow is in heaven wringing his hands if democracy in America is crumbling, thinking, what am I going to do now? No, God is not doing that. God is sovereign. God is upon his throne. And does not God demonstrate his sovereignty, that the Father sent his Son, his only begotten Son, his beloved Son, when one of the most egotistical and narcissistic rulers ruled the known world. He called himself the exalted one. He called himself and acted like a god upon earth. Humanly speaking, we should read Luke chapter 2 and say, God, I don't think now is a very good time to send your son. And yet God says, no, now is the time. Does that not demonstrate what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. God did not send his son to be an equal or even greater power in the eyes of humanity as Caesar or as Quirinius or as Herod the Great. No, how is it that the father sent his son? The father sent his son as a frail child, as a helpless baby in the most fragile state that they could come. 
this week. We as a family were pleased to see the arrival of a new nephew, at least a nephew to me, a grandchild to my parents, born to my youngest sister, born on December 2nd on Evelyn's birthday. And we saw the pictures of this beautiful little baby, and it was beautiful, but in many ways it was pathetic, pathetic as all little babies are, meaning it was helpless. It is weak. It couldn't do anything for itself. And yet, that is exactly how the king of heaven and earth came, the very opposite of the Caesar of that day demonstrates and proves that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, that my power is made perfect in weakness. And there is a picture for us, isn't there, in the coming of Christ, that this humble service in the name of Christ will do all manner and measure of good, much more so than all the politics of this world. And we need to hear that. We need to be reminded of that in a heavily politicized year, do we not? It's not about who's got the power or who's gaining the power or who's losing the power. It's about what's being done in Christ's name, what's being done in service and meekness and humility. Because I tell you, that is how the world is changed. Not that we shouldn't be in politics, not that we shouldn't be interested in politics, not that we shouldn't send Christians into politics. We do, but let us not think that that is the only way that this world is changed for the better. It is not. I would say that service unto Christ is how Christ changed the world. Christ came ultimately not to save his people from Rome, did he? No, he did not come to build that kingdom. He came to build a much greater and grand kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. Nor has Christ come to save us from all of our temporal plights of this earth. But I tell you this, he has come to redeem every situation that we endure even our pain and our suffering is for his purpose it's for the advance of his kingdom and i think that puts all things into perspective doesn't it the the good as well as the bad is the lord using 2020 for his purpose i tell you that he is every minute of it And so as we reflect on this year, let us have that perspective. Let us look from that worldview that God indeed is using all of our situations, all of our plights, if they be good or bad, for his purpose and ultimately for his kingdom. But as we go on, we see that Christ came ultimately to save us from something much greater than our temporary woes. He came to save us from the eternal plight. It is curious that the Father, when you, in a sense, least expect it, sent His Son 
in the midst of what we may call a very bad and terrible political situation. But isn't it a picture then that there is a much greater plight that plagues mankind than who sits on temporal earthly thrones? Again, as Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our battle is not with mankind. That doesn't mean that there isn't much struggle and pain and toil afflicted by mankind on each other. No, that is very much present, but there's something deeper, something darker, something that is unseen behind it all. There is a struggle that is going on since the beginning of the world between good and evil. And that has been taking place since Lucifer, the angel of the Lord, in pride and arrogance, fell from heaven. When he rebelled against the Lord, when he brought all of earth with it through the temptation of our first parents of Adam and Eve in the garden and the earth and indeed all of mankind is upon a curse because it's under the power and sway of Satan himself in the lion the witch in the wardrobe perhaps you've read that or seen the movie you remember that Narnia was under a curse of the witch the white witch where it was winter all the time and yet never Christmas, as Lewis puts it. In other words, it was cold and dark and dreary. That there was no hope, no joy, nothing to look forward to or delight in. That was Lewis's analogy of the earth under the curse of the fall and sin. That is the state of the earth apart from Christ. And that is why we read Genesis chapter 3. As we see that because of this sin, no doubt Satan was behind. says that there would be enmity, that there would be antagonism, there, there would be hostility, there would be war between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And yet how often we forget about this struggle, this spiritual struggle that is taking place in the spiritual realm that is affecting us and affecting our world. Lewis, again, in another one of his works in the screw tape letters, which I think Pastor Myers two weeks ago mentioned, says this, there are two equal and opposite errors which our race can fall into about devils. One is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The other is to disbelieve in their existence. And he goes on to say that the evil one, Satan, is pleased with either one, with both. And so we don't want to go to either extreme. And surely there are people that do have an unhealthy and excessive interest in them. 
but I would say that is the minority. I would say the majority of humanity would not believe in this at all, and perhaps even in your own hearts you are struggling to kind of understand that. But I tell you to ignore that is to ignore what is wrong with the world and what is wrong with us apart from Christ. Ephesians 2 tells us so accurately the state of humanity when it says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Do you hear the state of mankind? It is dead. Do you hear our state, you and I, apart from Christ? We are dead. And Paul goes on to say what that means to follow in the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. It means to live in the passions of the flesh, to carry out the desires of the body and the mind. And he goes on to say, We are by nature children of wrath. I tell you, that is the best, most honest assessment of mankind that can be out there. That that is our state, that we were in it deep. But that is, by God's grace, not the end of the story. It could be, right? If God did not do his work, but Ephesians 2 Verse 4 has those amazing words, but God being rich in mercy. Listen to that. But God being rich in mercy. He was not cheap. He was not stingy. He was not reluctant with his mercy, but he gave it in excessive measure because it goes on to say because of the great love which he loved us, while we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. Doesn't that not demonstrate the level, the depth of which we needed to be saved from? That This salvation that we talk about, this salvation that we rejoice in was not just a little patchwork. It didn't just need a a little band-aid like we tell our children that, oh, it's just a little boo-boo and we can put this band-aid on it and, oh, look, all is better now. No, we needed full restoration. We needed full rescue. We were dead and we needed to be made alive. We needed full resuscitation. That is what God gave us in mercy by sending his son. And so one of the aspects, one of the great aspects of our redemption was that Christ came to save us and to free us from the clutches of Satan and evil itself. And I said before, and as I mentioned, he did not do it by coming to sit upon an earthly throne. No, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He gave his life in death. That's why the author of Hebrews says this, through death, he, that is Christ, would destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, 
and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Do you hear those words? That through Christ's death, we are now released. We are now made free. That we are no longer under the power of death. No longer are we underneath the fear of death. But rather, we have been given freedom. That Christ came not taking but giving. Giving his life as a ransom for many. That is quite the opposite, isn't it? Of Caesar, or really of most any politician, or even Satan himself, who use so that they can gain. Christ says, I will be used so that they will gain. That they will gain their freedom, that they will be rescued, that they can now live in the freedom that they no longer are subject to bondage. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set you free. We are free, brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why, brothers and sisters in Christ that live in communist China or tribal Africa or here with the democracy of the United States, are free, not because of the form of government, but because of Christ. We live under the reign of Christ as our King. And let us be reminded, though we celebrate Him coming as a child, and though at Easter we celebrate the suffering servant, let us be reminded that he is no longer a child or the suffering servant anymore. Rather, because of what he has done, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who fills all in all. In other words, he lacks no power. He lacks no control. And therefore, we come underneath his protection. We come underneath his hedge. We come underneath his reign. And that is why we are told in the New Testament, therefore be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. That is the power that we are now in possession of. So draw upon it daily as you fight the good fight of faith in your fight of sin. Come to the captain of your salvation and you are feeling weak and frail come to the strong tower that is Christ when you are feeling defeated and discouraged come to the high priest that ever intercedes on your behalf he who has freed you from all bondage who has freed you from sin and from Satan himself, come and rest in him. Isn't that what this meal symbolizes this morning as we come to the table? Jesus bids us to come and to eat and to rest and to receive and to be reminded that he gave of himself so that we could be set free. We are no longer in bondage for Christ has set us free for freedom in him. That's why, again, Isaac Watts in that wonderful hymn in stanza four says, He rules the world. 
with grace and truth. And the nations, the nations, you and I, prove the glories of His righteousness and the wonders of His love. In other words, look no further. We are the proof of His righteousness, not our righteousness, His righteousness, and the wonders of His love. For indeed, He has set us free to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. So indeed, this season, let there be joy to the world, for the Lord is come. And I tell you, He is now here, and He is coming again in glory and in might. Amen.